John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 325.JN0432, certificate number 30269, deep fried turkeys. Okay, Thanksgiving is coming up and Teddy wanted to do a trial run on his turkey cooking. So he's going to put it in his homemade fryer over there and we'll see how it goes. I didn't think it was a good idea. I wanted to stay inside, so... Whoa! Mackerel, good thing we're inside. Don't think that was a good idea. He said he put dirt on it. <laughs> it's gonna be delicious now. The one thing the future knows about you above all, John Roderick, is that you dislike potatoes. Yeah, I don't like them. It's They're, true. So, what is your Thanksgiving food taste if you can't have? delicious mashed potatoes. Well, it isn't that I can't have them. And in fact, I will, Thanksgiving is one of the instances where I will make an exception and eat mashed potatoes. Really? Like for social reasons? For social reasons, and also- your, So others don't feel uncomfortable around mm, your- It's more that I will eat anything with gravy on it. <laughs> and so my, my dislike of potatoes is- overwhelmed by my love of gravy. Now, I prefer stuffing. Well, yeah, you could put the gravy on the stuffing. I love gravy on stuffing, but if someone makes a big plate of mashed potatoes, you know, a Thanksgiving dinner is what it is. It has cranberry sauce on it. and for, whether For whatever reason. Yeah, there it is. And whether you like cranberry sauce or not, whether I would eat cranberry sauce in any other context, whether I, I mean, have you ever eaten a <laughs> creamed pearl onion in any other context? It's uh, Thanksgiving's like the Necco roll of meals in that it's got these six weird flavors yeah. in the same order, root beer, uh, <laughs> cola, chocolate. Like these are not, these are not actual hard candy flavors, but there they are in the same order every time you get one. <laughs> That's what it is. And the pilgrims decided if we're going to, it's like a prank. Yeah. Like a green bean with, with <laughs> fried, uh, like shaved almonds on it. Did you hear the guy that invented the Thanksgiving green bean casserole died last week? No way. Yeah. I mean, he's not, it's not like Edison died. This guy put cream of mushroom soup and, and Durkee's fried onions. <laughs> but still. <laughs> a thing of green beans. You forget that these things were invented, right? That the pilgrims didn't put cream of mushroom soup in some green beans. We have no record that right. they did anyway. But yeah, food gets invented. Yeah. There are food novelties. For example, a little segue, during the mid-80s fad for Cajun and Creole cooking, 
You, yes. Do you remember this? Oh my God, I sure do. You couldn't walk you out your front door without a blackened <laughs> redfish hitting you in the face. Oh my God, people were blackening everything. Blackened cheeseburgers, blackened spaghetti. I remember how there was so much uh, hand-holding, like, don't worry, it's not burned. Right. It's blackened. It's blackened. But it actually is burned. The way you blacken the coating of something is to char it. But it was a time when food in America was going from bland to spicy, too. That I think people now can't imagine the degree to which food up until the 1980s in America was seasoned only with salt and uh, pepper. And that's a mystery, right? Because, Or if you're Italian, garlic. And garlic. But that was so out of the ordinary that non-Italians used that as a racial slur. Oh, the garlic eaters there on the wrong side of the tracks. The garlic <laughs> eaters down on the Lower East Side. Eating that garlic. Ooh, that's, uh, that's suspicious food that we all hate. Easy garlic. But then in the 80s, there was, uh, you know, I think American food got internationalized and all, all of a sudden Mexican food was adding a lot of spice to our cuisine and Thai food and all these foods that had never been present in middle America. Do you so, have some overarching theory on why this happened during the Reagan era of all times? Because if you had asked me to like design this for my um, a D&D campaign that revolves around food fads. I would have said, well, when that guy is president, American food just becomes very insular and bland, uh, a lot of mayonnaise. Yeah, I think a, there's a lot of thick flour based <laughs> sauces. There still was a lot of jello salad during <laughs> that era, but I think it's just a side effect of the jet age. Right. I mean, we're talking about 20 years after jet travel becomes commonplace. You have people from all around the world that, are to, that have had enough time to establish a, a culinary tradition in their new home, their new land. And I, in some cases, a concerted effort, like the Thai government poured, I think, millions of dollars into training chefs and sending them overseas so that Thai restaurants would be a thing and worldwide Thai culture and, and eventually tourism would blossom. They, that They're is, planting seeds like a million little pad Thai seeds out in the fields. Of all the ways to sow like your culture or sow discontent around the world, like the Russians are doing it in a very different way, right? They're They're <laughs> creating a lot of... A lot of people well, out there that feel very insecure about their genitals. What if there were just a bunch of bots on Facebook that were like, you know what's good, borscht. You know? And then some other, like, some other guy, Boris69420, uh, uh, is like, is true, borscht delicious. <laughs> Have you ever had a piroshki? <laughs> very good. Uh, but yeah, the Thai, I mean, Thai food did kind of revolutionize the way people thought about what was for dinner. It didn't taste like anything else. Like nobody else had really been like, yeah, yeah peanuts, lime juice. Chili peppers, you know. Coconut it, milk. It'll wake you up. Yeah. Um, but Cajun food being the first, and it felt very homegrown. It felt like a kind of, you know, and Louisiana's always been, liter I hate to say the word literally, but literally a melting pot. Like maybe some of the Are most. Are you saying the state of Louisiana is literally some kind of pot? It's a pot. It's literally, it's, it's shaped like Louisiana or is it round like a pot? It's Are the uh, maps wrong? I think it's the, I'm talking about the, the bodies of water uh, around Louisiana. Lake Pontchartrain is literally a pot. a pot. Anything that touches it melts immediately. No, it's a, you know, it's been a crossroad. It was the crossroads and it continued to be, right? This was uh, the, the area there, the shrimp fishing culture there absorbed a lot of the refugees from Vietnam in this same period, late late 70s, early 80s. Also, weirdly, a ton of Croatian oyster fishermen. Did you know this? Like the whole oyster, I don't know if that's still true, but the whole oyster industry was Croatia, was Dalmatians. 
Really? Not the dogs, obviously. That'd be weird. Can you imagine mm. a bunch of trained spotted dogs out there catching oysters? I can't imagine Just that, bringing yes. them to your door all happy, <laughs> like with a mouthful of oysters, like, look what I got. The whole area just <laughs> smells like wet Dalmatian. No, for some reason... Uh, Dalmatians don't smell when they're wet? Yeah, that's why firemen use them. All those hoses, you can't be smelling wet dog. No, that's why they wear the masks. <laughs> uh, what were we even talking about? Oh, yeah. So it's uh, people from all over the world. The If you take a dish of gumbo today, it will have, it'll be a French roux base, but the okra will be from African cookery and the filet powder will be from India. The sausage, the sausage or sausage, apparently. Yeah, the sausage. The sausage. The snossages. <laughs> it's like Sean Connery <laughs> making a gumbo. And then you're at the sausage. <laughs> the sausage will. Uh, Excuse me, that made me cough. The sausage will be from the bayou uh, and the peppers will be from Spain. And, you know, Vietnamese guys caught your shrimp and Dalmatians um, caught your oysters. It's, it's literally a culinary crossroads of the world. And but is there a reason that that New Orleans style Cajun cooking became fashionable at that time? Is it is it just the handiwork of one chef? It's pretty much one guy. Yeah, you know, for for twenty years or more, American idea of fine dining was French food, and a big reason for that was because that's what Julia Child was making every morning on PBS. Like there was no other food celebrity to challenge Julia Child, like American Gladiator style. God bless her with one of those foam um julia child quarterstaff things former oss agent right six foot eight i think uh-huh. six foot eight julia six child eight. in france after the war trying to blend in <laughs> she could she could jump 14 feet high from just standstill it was amazing anybody who's watched her show has seen her do that because yeah. she would put something in a you know she'd slide something in the oven and she would just jump 14 feet in the <laughs> jump air straight up through the skylight <laughs> why, and be like, why is she even doing that where'd she go why she, is that part of the recipe she does it every time <laughs> But uh, in the 80s, she had a challenger. There was a New Orleans chef named Paul Prudhomme, who you may recall, this sort of Dom DeLuise-looking dude. He was. In his white chef's outfit. And he was a... And the two of them... The two of them had a had lot. An affair. Well, not they, a steamy affair. They would, and then she would jump fourteen feet and be like, "Naughty, naughty, naughty! Don't touch Julia." They, uh, Dom DeLuise and Paul Prudhomme took a lot of fashion cues from one another. They both wore. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, they both wore like handkerchiefs tied around their neck. They both wore those kind of soft. Uh, Chicago style newsboy the, the hats. hats. Well, imagine them both because they were roommates. Imagine them coming out of their respective rooms every morning and be like, oh, oh you wore the hat too. Garlic eater. <laughs> he was essentially the new Julia Child. He was a beloved Louisiana restaurateur. Pourquoi? Um, Where did he come from? Why would why would we embrace him? Julia Child, it's obvious why we embraced because her because the OSS, she saved, yeah, because she saved Western civilization. Well, that and she probably like uh, retconned us with uh, with some CIA. Like, this is the kind of food you like. Oh, you think French it was, food it is was, fancy food. It was mass food. hypnosis? Yeah, it was on Radio America or something. <laughs> French food is fancy food. Other food is garbage food. What a weird propaganda uh, uh, undertaking for the U.S. government to make everyone think that French food was the fanciest. It was part of the Marshall Plan. We had to rebuild <laughs> France in some way. What else do they make there? So this is the beginning of this kind of uh, culinary-based uh, hacking yeah. of a foreign culture. It was like, listen, Le Creuset pots are the best pots. Honestly, American kind of did hack foreign cultures, right? Like Coke, this random taste that no one's ever invented, is actually the best taste. All you want is, <laughs> is Coca-Cola, this weird mix of vanilla and cloves and I don't even know what else. And it, it kind of worked. People were like, oh, yeah, Coke, Coke, that's the coolest. 
you know, Hershey bar number one, you know, all these GIs with their whatever snack foods were in their little kit. Right. Well, cigarettes, my God. I mean, that's the ultimate American hack. Does that count as food to you? It did. (laughs) (laughs) There was a time in my life where I certainly would have chosen cigarettes over food. Um, In the mid eighties with uh, Paul Prudhomme already, early eighties, Paul Prudhomme was already a New Orleans celebrity, but he left his kind of old timey restaurant, by the way, in the hands of a new chef named Emeril Lagasse. That's kind of the that's the secret origin of was it a French restaurant? Emeril Lagasse. It was. It was. Yeah, it was Creole cooking. So yeah, French accented, but also a ton of crawfish and mm-hmm. shrimp and jambalaya. It was everything. And he founded a new restaurant called K. Paul's Louisiana Kitchen. He was Paul. I think K. was his wife or partner at the time. Let, let me let me back up a second. Do you say crawfish, crayfish, or crawdad? <sighs> so. Is there a wrong answer? Am I no, going to get... it's a regionalism. So I hear, I you know, when I was a kid watching these uh, Louisiana chefs on TV, they would mostly say crawfish. When my cousins caught them in the crick, they would say crawdad. And I don't even know crayfish. That seems like it's a, what a scientist would say. We've, we've created a six foot long crayfish, sir. <laughs> Does crawfish come from crayfish or... They're the same. <laughs> they're the same species, they're but the they're, same, they're not the same words. They're the same aminal. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, crawfish. And do you really think that crawfish and crayfish evolved independently in the, <laughs> in the language? No, they're completely unrelated. Crawfish comes from. <laughs> I just don't like, I don't, well, you know what I just found out yesterday? This is essentially unrelated is that island and isle are parallel converging, converging words. Really? Where does isle come from? Isle comes from the Latin, like insula, like to be insular, to insulate something means to isolate them. Uh-huh. So iso, iso, to put them on an isle, like peninsula, almost an island. Um, so an isola was a Latin island. Um, and that's where our word isle comes from. But island comes from eigland, which is, you know, it's Norse or Anglo-Saxon or whatever. And that means water land. And it didn't even used to have the silent S. That was some bozo being like, oh, it must have a silent S because of the Latin. Because he, he assumed it came from the same word. Right. But it didn't. But you're, wow. telling me, you're telling me crawfish and crayfish are not a case of converging. <laughs> I'm going to guess that one is not from the Norse and one <laughs> from the Latin. Like when the Normans came to England, they were like, uh, <laughs> these are crayfish, by the way. We're going to put a silent W. Uh, so we say, I say crawdad. Like you... Do you you never say to say crayfish? To say crawfish sounds really awkward and bad to me. And crayfish, again, sounds like something that you would misread in a book. So crawdad is the. It is, sounds very country to me. Crawdad. Well, so does. Do you really say crick, or do you only say crick when you are? I was imitating someone who fishes for crawdad. I do not say crick, but I think there are parts of the Mountain West where my cousins were from where they would say crick. Where, say, where else do they say crick? Midwest? They, they say crick in the Midwest and they say crick in Alaska. They say uh, crick in Alaska? Yeah, we would think people would say crick all the time. Are you sad there's no crawdads in your Alaskan cricks? Sadly, there are no crawdads in Alaskan cricks. I wasn't sad then because I didn't, I wasn't conscious of them. I only became conscious of crawdads when they started. Do you, do you remember the exact day when you achieved crawdad consciousness? I believe it happened in the context of... Uh, uh, like my consciousness of so many things, it happened in the context of fettuccine. A plate of fettuccine arrived, and I was like, those aren't shrimp. What's this little red guy? And it, they appeared to be in the shrimp family, and they were crawdads. And I said, I will eat those. Those look like little lobsters. 
Are you asking me to say crawdad for the rest of the show? No, no. I, I feel like you should choose the nomenclature that feels most right to you. That I'm comfortable with. But I look Crawdad at, is gendered. Some of them are craw moms. Hmm. I think, I, da, I think, I think, no, I think dad in that comes from the Latin, uh, dode, meaning mm. little lobster. <laughs> Lil with an apostrophe. <laughs> little, little lobs, little lobs. Lil. To me, like a crawdad is one when it's crawling around, but when it's like what in, if, a, in what, the jambalaya, that's crawfish. What if it's under a rock and you have to reach in there and get it and capture it in your hat? Crawdad faux show. Right? That's a crawdad. That's right. absolutely a crawdad. But then when you cook, when you shell it and cook it, or cook it and shell it and put it in a in a roux, then it becomes a what did you say? Crayfish? Crawfish? Crawfish? A crawfish. Here's the problem you're with crawfish. Like you've never heard the word crawfish. Here, here's well, the problem. Certainly not fish. It's not a fish. Well, it's not a dad necessarily. You're 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 conflating the dad with the wrong dad. It's a dad like a dude, like a like a dode. Like it's daddy-o? Like a, it's like a beatnik. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. The lights in here are flashing now. Definitely, I, definitely I, react to this thing that no listener can see. <laughs> the best radio is when when you go. <laughs> Whoa, what Whoa, did, you, did you see that? Did you see that, Ken? That was crazy. The light bulb that was off just came back on. It was unexpected because I thought it was going to stay off. Uh, so I go ahead. You 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 finish your story. <laughs> you, I just <laughs> what, what what will you be doing? I'm going to be. Are you changing a light bulb? <laughs> no, I'm going to be looking up. Crawdad, the derivation of crawdad. The etymology? Yeah. I just looked up crawfish. It does seem like crawfish and crayfish both come from Middle English. Just so different vowels getting subbed in for the for crevice, which so is what they used to be called. Crawdad says freshwater crayfish. Are there saltwater crayfish? Or are those I believe lobsters? it's one of the arguments for the existence of God. If there is a freshwater crayfish, there must perforce be a saltwater crayfish. I see. And there must be a great omniscient crayfish that created them all. So here are some other QED. terms. Crawlfish. Oh, does it come from crawl? I bet that's a false etymology. Crawlfish, crawl dads, mountain lobsters, which is what I'm going to call them from now on. <laughs> These are 100% gay dating website terms. I'm looking for a crawl dad or a mountain lobster. I'm a mountain lobster. <laughs> Seeks crawl dad. Here, but here are the ones that I will not call it. Mud bugs. Yeah. I will not eat a mud bug. And the best one maybe? Yabbles. Yabbles? Yabbles. That is not real. Oh, no. I'm sorry. Is that yabbles or yabbies? I think it might be yabbies. You're very close to your monitor right now. Well, I can't quite see it there. So whichever you decide, like, that's what the future is going to call crawdads. The giant, well, the, the giant super intelligent crawdads to which to whom we are speaking. Yeah, they're like it's um yabbies, and that's a very um, uh, derogatory term now. I'm sorry, we don't use the term yabbies anymore. We are crawl dads. They've reappropriated yabbies, but we are not allowed to use it. That's that's their word. It might it might be crawfish, but it's spelt like. Microfiche, it's like crawlfish. Crawl is absolutely a uh, whatever you call it, one of those false etymologies or false cognates where some guy is like, Oh, yeah, because they crawl, we're gonna call them crawlfish, just like the dude who's like, I'm gonna put an S in island, F all y'all. That must be why they call them crawdad, it's it's a crawl. And you're doing the raising Arizona voice, and (laughs) when there was no crawdad, we ate sand, not unless round is funny. 
When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. So crawdads were a big part of the menu at K. Paul's Louisiana Kitchen, but it was exactly the kind of stuff you'd expect, jambalaya and gumbo. But he added a signature dish of his own, which was one of these, a blackened, a thin blackened filet of fish. He would cover it with a, a spicy Creole spice mix and some butter. And basically you just put it dry over very hot heat, 600 degree heat, just for like a few minutes on each side. So you really are charring it. When people say you're not burning it, no, you're absolutely burning it. But it was huge. It caught on like wildfire to the degree that conservationists started writing articles about which fish we're going to go extinct because of Paul Prudhomme. You know? Really? Because redfish was, you know, it's kind of just these garbage New Orleans fishes. And suddenly uh, this becomes the swanky food in American psycho era New York. Uh-huh. And everybody's eating these. But redfish is a kind of fish or just a sort of fish? Are we going to go down? Are we going to go down another crawdad <laughs> rabbit hole? Now, are they red dads or no? I think a redfish is a saltwater fish of, so, of so some kind. Turns out crayfish comes from the old French word Escrivice, and the vise kind of got transmogrified into fish. Fish. That's the same. That's a false thing, like yeah. like island or or a crawlfish. So the whole thing's fake. They're not fish. They don't crawl. No. It's just they're just a crevice. Why they couldn't look at it and say lobster, small lobster, little lobster. Do you think that comes from crevice? Do you think it's the same root as crevice? Because they do live in little crevices. Yeah. Like I'm going to say sure. That's your ruling. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go with that. I bet it does. It's a, it's a crevice fish. So, Paul, check your crevices when you come out of the crick. So, uh, so Paul Prudhomme expands his empire, as I said, to other cities. In 1985, he tries a little pop-up of his restaurant on the Upper West Side. And it's, you know, it's a big happening in Patrick Bateman's New York. All these, all these awful rich people can't wait to try this exotic Southern food. Um, but before it even opens, he has trouble... Uh, Somebody at some, a journalist at some kind of event sees flies descending on everything in the kitchen and wires just hanging out of the ceiling like you're, like you're blinking light bulb. Sure. And just, just like in New Orleans. <laughs> right. It's, it's very authentic. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't fly in the Big Apple, Mm-mm. as they called it back then. What works in the Big Crawdad? No, it does not. It, I, what, the Big Easy? Ah, there the Big we go. Easy is easy. But the, it's hard. The big Apple is, is hard an, and sour. An apple's crisp. You know, it's the opposite of easy. Uh, so even before they open, the Board of Health descends like a load of New Orleans flies. And suddenly Paul Prudhomme has 29 health code oh, violations. You know what? They were looking for a little bit of a... It's a shakedown? It's graft. For an yeah, out-of-towner? For sure. They were like, hey, Louisiana boy, <laughs> you got to pay to play here in New York City. You got deep pockets in those aprons, yeah. I bet. 
actually, Graft is what solved the problem. Uh, one phone call to Mayor Ed Koch later, at the time New York was being run by this kind of abrasive conservative Democrat um, named Ed Koch, who's not remembered all that fondly. Right. Uh, and the right palms got greased, apparently, and the right crawdads were brought to Gracie Mansion or whatever. And suddenly Ed Koch is there in front of the press with Paul Prudhomme, uh, reassuring everyone that the restaurant's going to open on schedule. Oh, and all I'm sure all the health department bureaucrats really felt supported by the mayor. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> How am I doing? Uh, and sure enough, it worked. Like once the, the what the media called the gumbo war was uh, settled with this armistice, there were just lines around the block the whole time it was open. And four years later, uh, Prudhomme opened a permanent restaurant in Nolita, which also just had lines around the block. And America could not get enough of Cajun food. And, and uh, in New Orleans, by the way, they thought this was crap. They were... Really? Yeah. The um, even the food at the time or the, or, or the New York popularization of the food? The popularization and the idea that everyone had that you could make Cajun food by getting a spice mix. I see. You know, like just sprinkle some red stuff and then you've got Cajun cooking because they thought it simplified their complicated crossroads of the world cuisine just to, you know, reduce it to whatever the... Because Cajun's kind of backwoods. Food. I'm, yeah, I'm sympathetic to that argument. We should do the Cajuns. So the Cajuns were originally the Acadians. Acadians, right? They were French, French that were... speaking settlers of the maritime Canadian provinces, which right. to, to this day is called Acadia. You can go to Maine and go to Acadia National Park. They were chased out by the British. There they are. There are the villains. The French, the French and Indian War happened, right. and the first thing the British wanted to do is to get all the French out of their part of. Canada. Right. And so the French it, were, were good at making friends with the Indians and fighting the British. You often call these uh, forced expulsions a trail of tears, thus I, risking I angry letters from I do not, Native no, Americans. No, 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 that's you. You're, you're forgetting, this you're is forgetting a, that you do that. But this is a voyage of tears where they just resettled tens of thousands. Voyage. A voyage <laughs> of tears. Voyage du tears. It was not a bon voyage either. <laughs> no. It was on uh, mal voyage. Un voyage malheureux. Vo voyage triste. Because all these people had to be resettled. And it's kind of similar to the, the uh, discussions you see later where it's uh, after the Civil War where um, well-meaning white doofuses are like, we got all these black people. We don't want them. Where can we put them? Um, and so Oklahoma, the, nobody's using that. Right, exactly. And so the same, the same things get discussed. You know, all these people have ideas. Well, we'll take the French and we'll send them to French Guiana or we'll move them to the Falklands. There were all these schemes for how to resettle these people. And the only one that really stuck was Louisiana. Because the, the French had, had always been uh, Mississippi pioneers. It was a French, there was French speaking culture there. The French had recently handed it over to the Spanish, but the French and the Spanish were getting along, unlike the French and the British. So here was an ally who you could take your poor, your tired, your huddled, your um, etouffee eating masses. Mm -hmm. And so- Yearning to breathe very humid air. <laughs> yearning to breathe free <laughs> and fry turkeys. And so a lot of them got sent to the bayous of Louisiana, where they immediately forgot the first syllable of their name and became Cajuns. Did you know that Mobile, Alabama uh, has one of the oldest sort of French- cultures and communities uh, in the in the Americas as well. Mobile's not that far from Right, it's right on the bay there. Right on the bay there and they have they have uh maybe one of the oldest celebrations of Mardi Gras in in these United States. I have been to Alabama once in my life and it was when I was in Columbus, Georgia and I walked across a bridge. Oh, and you set, were like set, I've been there. Check. 
I'm down. I'm up to 44 states or whatever it was. Now I, I want to. I want to. I'm going to put that to the futurelings whether or not that qualifies. Walking like, across a bridge and touching the ground. I got my passport stamped. I'm a big so fat sure. corrupt sheriff came up and said, "Why don't you head back to Georgia?" <laughs> if you <laughs> land at the Atlanta airport and take a tram to a different gate and then get on another plane and fly away, have you been to Georgia? So this is actually a live question for these people who compulsively collect geographic destinations. Like there's people out there collecting countries sure. and that's not enough for them. So they will break the countries down into territories and provinces and whatnot. Right. And they, you know, it's like a, it's like a collection, but it's virtual. You can't just go to Canada. You have to go to all, every province of Canada. Right. And it doesn't make sense if somebody goes to Tahiti to be like, nope, that's not a new country. That's just France. You know, it's, it's not the same. So I'm sympathetic to that. But these people have very specific rules and they're always fighting with each other about what the rules should be like you have to spend the night right does an airport uh an airport does not count generally yes that is the thing a, an airport uh what do you call it what's a stopover called a uh, layover a layover i've never actually been in one of those fancy aeroplanes <laughs> <laughs> a layover does not count unless you leave the airport they try to get passport stamps that of course that's, right. that's evidence but if you leave the airport go out and get a, a shrimp po boy somewhere and then, where, where, what, where are you thinking here? <laughs> well, if these you, people have just flown to Uruguay to get a shrimp po' boy. If you uh, if you get off at the uh, you know in the nation of Louisiana, I see. And you get a you get a shrimp. I like I just like saying shrimp. Shrimp. You get a shrimp po' po' boy. You walk around, eat it, and then go back through passport control and get back on your plane. That constitutes a visit. I interviewed one guy who would absolutely do that. He had all this dot com startup money, and he was like, "I'm going to get them all, going to like a, like a Pokemon guy." So he would get off the plane in Bulgaria, hang out have for like twelve hours, have have one of those famous Bulgarian shrimp boys. Uh -huh. He had to go down to Dalmatia for that, uh, and then he would get on the plane and fly to whatever his next hole was, Armenia or or whatever. And that was, and he was telling me, "I deeply regret that. Like now, I'm going back to all these places, and I'm spending a few weeks because I kind of thought." That's how you did Bulgaria, 18 hours and check it off your list. And he, sure. he feels guilty now. Oh, well, I'm glad he feels guilty. He should. If he's going to squander his dot-com dollars doing something dumb and self-aggrandizing like that, he should at least spend three days in a place. His name's Charles uh, Vili, And it, it, there actually is some comeuppance where he does lose all his, you know, all his stock becomes worthless and he has to go back to work for the same oh. company. But he is, he's still traveling. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Um, how many uh, American states have you been to? Is it 44? It's right around there. I have not. What been if I to... take Alabama away? Do you go? You've been to all, to... you've been to all of them, right? Yeah. I have not been to Nebraska, Vermont, Alaska. Weirdly. Have we done this on the show? No. Um, West Virginia. I'll take you to Alaska. Let's go. Uh, yeah. So I'm missing five ish. It yeah. sounds like. Vermont. It's yeah. You have to make a point to go to Vermont. Although it's between New York city and Montreal. So there's lots of ways to go through Vermont. I've been to Montreal. I could have gone through. So I drove all the way up from Connecticut all the way up to Maine, and I very easily could have gone through no. Vermont. And I, well, no, you couldn't have. Well, very easily meaning some oh, four-hour <laughs> diversion. Like I could have planned the trip such that I checked that one off too, and I did not. Right. Um, I just stayed along the coast kind of. But uh, why were we talking about this? We're, ta we're still talking about Paul Prudhomme. Well, I know uh, that, but how did we get down the rabbit hole of... Uh, oh, where the Acadians oh, arrived the Acadians. in, in uh, right. New Orleans. And so that's why, you know, there's this kind of separate people with an even weirder accent and an even weirder cuisine kind of living in the... Hiding body. out. Hiding out in the swamps. Except you can always hear their fan boats coming. 
You're always like, what's that breeze? Ah, uh, oh, it's a Cajun. <laughs> hit the deck. Is it, so so the, the Mardi Gras presence in Alabama, is that also, it's French, it's also mm-hmm. Cajun uh, immigration? Yeah, well, that whole that whole region, I mean, this was all Louisiana Purchase, yeah. right? So that whole, uh, those cities pre-existed the there Louisiana was no Alabama. Purchase. Right, that's right. Does that explain kind of the weird Alabama accent, which is not Southern and not even, I mean, it sounds like nothing you've ever heard? The weird Alabama accent, I do not believe can be 100% accounted for <laughs> by any like historic method of in, investigation. In our era, there's this uh, Netflix show, documentary show called Last Chance You about junior college football. And it's all these kids that have washed out of real programs for smoking pot or being a dick to the coach or punching their girlfriend or something. And they all wind up at this at this champion junior college where if they wash out now, they're done. Yeah. And, Go get a uh, job at a Pontiac dealership. And every time they interview a local or one of the players who happens to be from this Alabama area, like it is not Southern English. It is not African-American vernacular English. I don't know what it is, but it needs subtitles. Like straight up, they subtitle the show, um, which feels kind of condescending. Like sure. these are the characters we subtitle, but you, I don't know what else you're going to do. Well, I mean, they subtitle Scots a lot of the time. In, like people in named films. Scott? Uh, well, no, they should. Actor Scott Glenn. Every every Scott I ever knew in Alaska needed subtitles. No, but I'm like in uh, in Train Spotting, for yeah, instance, yeah, that's right? True. And that's also meant kind of to be hilarious and condescending. I I do kind of have the gift of tongues thing where I'll be watching a movie like that, and at the beginning I'll be like, I am not. Is this guy even speaking English? Right. I was watching some Irish movie that had this where I could not understand a word, and like twelve minutes in, suddenly you're there. The brain adjusts. Yeah. And suddenly. It's like when they zoom in on Sean Connery's mouth in Hunt for Red October, and he's like speaking bad Russian, in Sean Connery voice. And then it zooms out, and it's like, and then we'll steal the submarine. Um, You're finding an awful lot of ways to insert your Sean Connery impression into this show. It got compliments in the um, Letter J show. So So now now I'm thirsty. Uh, uh, please rate us on iTunes, five-star rating. and Please rate us only by our, the strength of our Sean Connery impressions. Uh, I grew up, my, like my first contact with the 80s Cajun Creole cooking boom was not fancy redfish in a fancy New York restaurant. It was um, this TV show by a guy named Justin Wilson. Have mm. you ever seen this Mm-mm. guy? Mm-mm. Big, kind of... Fat, white-haired, Cajun, or, you know, Dom C- Cajun guy. looking guy. Less Dom Deluise looking, more kind of Colonel Sanders looking. All he's right. got a mustache. He's got suspenders. He's got one of those Colonel Sanders ties. Mm-hmm. What are those even called? Alabama tie? Yeah, it's called an Alabama tie. An Alabama tie. <laughs> I mean, what what is it? It's like kind of fancy dress tie. It's not... It's not a... Str- you wouldn't call it a... It's not a bolo. It's I don't like, know. It's a string tie. Is it a string tie? Oh, it's more of a ribbon tie, but yeah. I, I, I never thought I could stump you on menswear. Yeah, it looks like a ribbon, right? Yeah, it's a, yeah. let's call it a ribbon tie. And I'm sure it has a name. He was some kind of oddball character from the Louisiana who had run into Will Rogers in the 30s and thought, I'm going to be- Who didn't? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, he died in Alaska. He did. He crashed a plane into Alaska. Alaska, yeah. the Alaskan tundra killed him. Alaskan tundra kills a lot of people. It's killed a lot of people. And, men, men I knew. And Wiley Post. And Wiley Post. And uh, Senator Ted Stevens. That's true. Don't fly over Alaska. Ernst Greening. Kills them all. Now you, you stumped me on the last one. Alaska kills them all and lets God sort them out. <laughs> that's, that's the law? <laughs> uh-huh. So it's the state motto. We'll give you, we'll you $9,000 a year, but then we will kill you. Yeah. A, kill you. B, let God sort let you God out. Let God sort you out. Um, 
so he met Will Rogers and decided he was going to become a humorist, this Justin Wilson guy. <laughs> and so he made like kind of back, back country comedy albums. And he was also a political operative, weirdly. Uh, in the 1950s, his brother-in-law was Louisiana Attorney General, and he ran some friend's unsuccessful gubernatorial campaign. So he had his, he had his wooden spoon in a lot of jambalayas, mm -hmm. as they say down there. Um, <laughs> sure do. That's, the, that's what they <laughs> say. Boy, he's got his spoon in a lot of jambalayas. You're going to get five stars for all your, for your uh, Nolens uh, <laughs> impressions. I think anyone from New Orleans is going to say, I do not recognize your accent, sir. Yeah, he has stopped listening. <laughs> those people have stopped listening to the show the second you did that out of deep offense. Um, he, so Justin Wilson, he went on the Ed Sullivan show. He became, he became kind of a broadcasting character and that got him a cooking show, even though really he did not come from a culinary background, except in that he was a guy from Louisiana. Sort of like Colonel Sanders. Fat guy from Louisiana. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or Ray Kroc. Like all I, all I was doing was selling milkshake machines. He didn't steal anybody <laughs> else's jambalaya like Ray Kroc did. I don't uh, know as far as you know. Uh, yeah. Ray Kroc stole your milkshake, huh? Um, but when he had a PBS show in the seventies. 80s, maybe, probably, maybe, probably uh, as a result of Paul Prudhomme starting this cookbook and uh, and TV empire, he became a Paul Prudhomme imitator or, or yeah, professional. Like, <laughs> so, like uh, when there were assassination attempts, he would get in the limo. <laughs> no, he's riding his long Cajun coattails. Yeah, exactly. Like the, suddenly, this guy can get a TV show. So he had Cooking Cajun, which I used to watch on PBS. And he was just telling stories about the bayou. And every time he made up a big mess or whatever, he was always making messes instead of um, dishes. Oh, he, right. They're called messes. You make a big mess of something. And he would, and he would say, I'm, I'm going to yell this. I'm a PIG hog. He would, he would always say he was a PIG hog, which is really hog. a problem with spelling. PIG does not spell <laughs> hog. <laughs> no, he's a pig hog. He's a pig which, hog. Which is a famous way of saying it's it. It's like one of those Greek animals that's half man and half bull. <laughs> Except it's half pig, half hog. You can't even tell. You can't even tell which half is which. Like all the DNA is split. Uh -huh. And his real catchphrase, would he, he would always uh, emphasize the truth of something he had said by saying, I guarantee. Oh, sure. Now, that now became, do you remember? Sure. That's a, that became a, an Americanism, right? I should have led with I guarantee. I guarantee. Where's the beef? Which of the... T no, he did not say where's the beef. <laughs> I get them all mixed up. He said, up. where's the andouille sausage? Light beer from Miller. <laughs> Dilly dilly. Remember when he used to say that? <laughs> I guarantee. It's, so that's this guy. It always seemed like the weirdest thing because there's no accent that would make you pronounce guarantee as guarantee. No. But what, what he's actually doing is he's saying the French, there's a French catchphrase in Cajun, you know, Creole French. You would say, je vous guarantee. Like, uh, I, I guarantee to you. I swear to you. Je and, vous guarantee. And he would say, I, I guarantee. guarantee. And, uh, and often what you would watch on the show was Justin Wilson cooking up a mess of shrimp and, and crawdads. Right. I think he said crawfish. Um, and this was a very common thing in Southern cuisine at the time, dating back to the seventies, actually, people had started to take the butane cookers that they would, um, that they would use in their camp stoves. They made and, boils. And in their trailer parks. And they would have a big boil. Right. You'd have all your friends over and boil something. And obviously boiling Crawfish is something they do in Scandinavia as well. Like it's, um, they have crawfish in Scandinavia. Yeah. There's some day of the year when so they So why all... the heck don't we have them in Alaska? Maybe there are some crawfish in Alaska, but we don't eat them. You know why? Because we have giant yeah. salmon and other wonderful well, fish. Have huge crabs and whatnot. Yeah. Why would we eat these little bugs, these mud bugs? I actually, uh, was invited to no, no offense to the futurelings who are sent who are, mud, who are for mud bugs, sure mud bugs. Who are like that's not a Louisiana accent that is a bad impression of Sean Connery you think the people in the future <laughs> speak we are not called mud bugs 
here are our demands. I had a, I have a part Swedish friend who invited me over for the one day of the year they do their big crayfish festival. It must be when they're running in the spring. I, I don't know. Is it half sweet? Is the friend half sweet, half Nort? Norsk? No. Um, Zebra stripes? She's half Swedish, half Jewish, actually. She's Swedish. Oh, my God. Is um, she married? Will you introduce me? She, unfortunately, is married to a, a Korean guy. Oh, I think I know who so, we're so talking the, about So they're Koreanish. You know my friends. Yes. I don't have that many Korean, Swedish, <laughs> Jewish friends. I'm not as worldly as you, John. I was running down the list of Ken's friends. I was like, which one fits, fits this description? Wait! But this is the worst social, one of the worst social embarrassments of my life. I never sent back the email to be like, great, we'll see you there, six o'clock. So he did not have me on the list of people. He later emailed and said, oh, we're not going to do the crayfish thing after all. <laughs> <laughs> Always send the final. Right. Absolutely so you, see you at you six. you showed up with a big lobster bib on. And <laughs> I, yeah. I'm holding a fork and an, an oversized fork and knife in my hand. You've got your he opens the door. spoon. Wait, where the crawfish at? And they're just like smiling and polite. And then right. they're like, you think we're doing that thing that we told you two weeks right. ago. They're in their footy pajamas. They could not have been nicer. And they invited us in and we had chicken, but um, yeah, no crawfish. So, but in the seventies, uh, this kind of crawfish boil became done one way. You would, you would take your little butane ring from your, from, you know, the people would buy for trailer parks or for RVs or whatever. I know you're a former RV mm-hmm. user. I don't mean to bring up your yeah. recent sad loss of, no, your, it's all right. of your vehicle. I never, I never added a butane a like crawfish boil thing to my RV that's culture. Probably, that's probably a good thing. That's yeah. for the, safety, if nothing else. The number of things that could explode inside that RV was it already numbered in the fives. <laughs> and uh, in a 1973 newspaper article from a Baton Rouge paper, a, a local guy named Joseph Kowalchuk shows his new take on a crawfish boil. He's actually taken one of the butane uh, tanks you use and, and cut it in half. So it's just the bottom. Hopefully it was... Empty of butane. No, it blew up and he died. <laughs> he's he's giving this recipe via seance. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, no, he uh, he waited till it was empty, sawed it in half, like a kid sawing up a bleach bottle in half to make a, a shovel oh, or, or whatever. Tell me. Why nope. did we do that? Those those che- those shovels were like a buck, and we were cutting bleach bottles in half. <laughs> um, and uh, he would he would uh, affix handles to it, and he could you you could use it for a deep fryer. You could place that over a. Oh, a lit butane tank. Yeah. And you got yourself a, a, a fish fry going. Okay. So this was a new addition to the crawfish boil. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So uh, apparently a Colonel Sanders tie is, we called it, we speculated it was a string tie, mm-hmm. and it's known as a string tie or a string bow tie. And it's a style of tie that came into popularity kind of globally in the 1840s. It was very popular in Britain 
also at the time, but uh, really became an icon of the American West and was still sort of used as a fancy dress tie during square dance culture up until the 50s in the South. And then it became a kind of teddy boy, uh, rockabilly oh, look. Oh, really? Um, and it still, I think, still persists as a sort of, fa- it's tied just like a bow tie. It just has a long long fringe. I assume Colonel Tom Parker was buried in one. Colonel Tom Parker used to give them out as gifts. Really? They, they became such a, a symbol of, and to those future links. A symbol is both a symbol and an emblem. A symbol. Those, uh, that actually, I feel like that's a pretty good coinage. Yeah, it's a symbol. Uh, to future links who don't know who Colonel Tom Parker is, basically anyone wearing one of these ties is a colonel. A Kentucky colonel. Which is a fake non-military self-appointed honor, right? Yeah. Well, you can't self-appoint yourself a colonel. Oh, does but the state decide who's a colonel? There's an august body that decides whether you're a Kentucky colonel, and you have to have <laughs> contributed somehow materially to the culture of the state of Kentucky. Jason, uh, my friend Jason Isbell of the 400-unit rock band. Name drop. Is... Um, a Kentucky Colonel, and he suggested to me that I might qualify as a Kentucky Colonel because I have Kentucky relatives. Have but you done anything for the great state of Kentucky? <clears throat> that's the problem. I haven't really contributed to Kentucky in any way, other than having played there a bunch of times. That's that's what they, that's what the state wanted from you. <laughs> the, but uh, the occasional rock show I in the two thousand. I don't think that Jason Isbell can get me my Kentucky Colonel tie. But Colonel Tom Parker was Elvis's manager. I and thought in his case, it was just some self-appointed thing that he was not actually a Kentucky I colonel. I think that's true. I think that's true. <laughs> Although maybe they retro, retroactively made him a Kentucky colonel. I think the Kentucky colonels maybe should be their own entry in the omnibus. Let's do. Maybe. Let's do. Imagine and then I'll get another chance to, to as you say, Jason. name drop Jason Isbell. <laughs> if I, if every time I talked about a rock musician, it was, I was accused of name dropping, boy, I would. Because you are constantly name dropping rock musicians. Well, because rock musicians are the people that I know. Yeah, Jason Isbell, Jason Isbell was, uh, was making coffee in your kitchen when I came in this morning. Who else am I supposed to talk about? My <laughs> Korean, Swedish, Jewish friends? They're all oh, rock musicians. I mean, you, I have them. They're just... You should just accuse me of name dropping when I just mentioned some non-famous, some norm, <laughs> normal friend of mine. Oh, great. Oh, great. Sounds, An- like, another sounds like Ken nor- knows the lady at the post office. <laughs> another Northwest Mormon that Ken apparently knows. <laughs> So the crawfish boil kind of turned into a, a, a fish fry if you just fill a half a tank with lard, um, basically. And so uh, fried food being just a also like a, a omnipresent a, factor in of southern the South, food. Sure. Yeah. And I don't want to you know stereotype. Like also, you go to a Midwest uh, county fair and you're going to see a lot of people frying up a lot of gross stuff. Sure, Snickers bars and yeah, Twinkies. Today, if you go to Scotland, you'll see people. You know, I think Scotland has a lot of these places where whatever you give them, they'll fry up a candy bar for you or uh, or whatever. Oh, you know? if you think about the fried fish of the United Kingdom, oh, I don't even want to think about the fried fish of the United They've Kingdom. They've been deep frying kind of suspect things for a long time. Um, in Thanksgiving of 1982, we see the first news story in which somebody has the bright idea to use one of these fish fryers to try out a turkey. And UPI reports that, um, in Church Point, Louisiana, uh, there's an enterprising lard entrepreneur named Alex Thibodeau. A lard entrepreneur. You know, big, he's in big lard. Uh-huh. Big lard controls a lot of, uh-huh. a lot of Louisiana. You're working for big lard. This guy has realized he can sell a lot of lard if people have to fill a deep fryer with it. Wait, he's selling lard. So did you think lard was free in well, Louisiana? They just it, give it to you at the border? It is. Maybe that's the Alaska way, John. The but. thing is, everybody that I know that cooks with lard keeps a lard bucket, which whenever they make... Is that what Jason is about? <laughs> whenever they make... 
bacon or or pork, they keep the grease and they keep it in a lard bucket. And I, I just assumed that lard was a thing that that grew grew on pig trees. Down there. But you have to, you would actually go to the lard man to buy enough lard to deep fry. I think the lard man would come around in, in his truck. Uh, in his lard <laughs> and you'd truck. leave out the, the empty bottles of lard mm-hmm. and he would put in Fill the new up. full bottles. So uh, this guy's like, how do I sell more lard? Yeah, exactly. He's a, he's a marketing genius. He's so the he, Ray Kroc of lard. Right. And he invites people to see, you know, because if you're going to fill a deep fryer with lard, you're going to be buying a lot, of lard a lot of lard from Alex. It reduces down. Right. And so he has this, he has somebody demonstrate a way to cook a turkey where you, uh, two days before Thanksgiving, you inject it with, um, spicy Cajun stuff, Italian dressing, mustard, salt, pepper, garlic, cayenne. And then instead of roasting it or, you know, in an oven, you lower it, uh, into a gumbo pot with nylon rope and it cooks very fast because it's very hot. It doesn't dry out and... I'm into it. You know, dry turkey is a big problem. When you're making a Thanksgiving dinner. It's a big problem. You have to, you have to. Like on what scale is it a big problem? Well, have you. UN climate report at your At your Thanksgiving dinner, who cooks the turkey? You? My wife. And does she do a good job? Is it delicious moist turkey? She's, it's really good, but she has like secrets because everyone hates dry turkey. This is the thing. So I'm saying it's a big problem. Dry turkey is a big problem. It'll dries out. You can't leave something in an oven for three hours or however long it takes to cook a big turkey. But it's a big fat bird, so you have to leave it in there that long. Right. Or and you get worms. So how the heck do you get it to stay moist? Mindy's solution, and I don't know if this is actually good practice or she not. She listens to this show. You're about to give away her secret? Her cooking secrets that she's told me to swear never to give away. How does she do it? I want to know. Uh, you start with the bird upside down. What? What? You put the- oh, because the fat is on the bottom part of the bird? Well, the breast is on the bottom part, the white meat that dries out the fastest. Yeah. So that's furthest from the heat and I guess closest to the drippings. Uh-huh. So it dries out less. And then, you know, at the end, you, you flip the bird, basically. You, you, you flip, <laughs> flip the someone bird. the bird. I do that every day, <laughs> one way or another. It just so the, 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 the breast, the top gets nice and brown and uh-huh. crisp. She also, uh, what does she do? She brines it first. Okay. That's a thing now. And that's for the same reason. So it doesn't dry out. Like by osmosis, if the thing is very salty, it'll hold on to more water. And I think some people will do a dry rub with salt, but I think she just brines it in salt water ahead of time. The problem with that is it makes the, you, I know you love gravy. It makes the drippings very salty. Oh yeah. But, but I like a salty gravy. I'm not going to lie. I don't like it super you, salty. You do like a salty gravy. I do. Don't you have a whole podcast where you talk about how you like salty yeah, gravy? salty gravy with John Roderick. <laughs> Tune in on Apple Podcasts and, and give us a five-star rating. That's the real Roderick After Dark show. Like, I got some salty gravy stories for you. But I have always been curious about a deep-fried turkey. Have I've, you never had I've one? I've never had one because I do not live in a lard-based culture anymore. <laughs> like, I wish I did. If the lard guy doesn't come by? If I still lived in Alaska, I would have absolutely had a, a, a deep-fried turkey a thousand times because I think this culture moved into... Alaskans are uh, omnivores of food and, and of food culture. Omnivores of food, not, not of the other thing that people are omnivores of, Omnivores of, uh, well, haven't you heard my other podcast, Omnivores with John Roderick? (laughs) No, yeah, they're, they're like uh, omnivorous of culture also. Right. And maybe because there is no native Alaskan cuisine so much. Uh, well, the native Alaskans uh, would argue that it is, that it is all the, there's Inuit, all the food of the sea. 
Right. Salmon and and blubber. But no, Alaska was uh, settled by oil workers from the South and from Louisiana. And men with no teeth make with sourdough starter? There was some of that. They came from Canada. Uh, Most of the toothless men. So it's Canadian cuisine you're making. Canadian cuisine, which is just Tim Hortons, uh, which also requires lard. It's Timbits. (laughs) Plus seafood, plus Louisiana cooking. The, uh, yeah, so this did become a nationwide fad. This did not stay in the South for long. The turning point was in 1987. There was a food writers convention because journalism was still a thing in 1987. Yeah. Food writers would go somewhere cool and eat on the company dime. In this case, it happened to be in New Orleans and they brought in a a local hotelier named Jim Chihardi to show this new local fad deep frying turkeys. And a lot of them wrote stories about it for their papers, but it was not like, check it out. This is the hot new thing in Thanksgiving because we weren't yet at that level of culture of novelty uh-huh. where we needed to have a new, you're doing it wrong. Right. Ev- right every right. year. Every year. Right. You know how to cook a turkey. Wrong. Shoot it out of a cannon. That kind of clickbait um, food writing had not been born yet. Um, so when people wrote stories about this, it was like, you will not believe the dumbass thing they're doing in New Orleans. That's how I felt about it when I first heard it. And it was like, we're going to give you the recipe, but it was really, you know, they would, somebody literally said, quote, strictly for curiosity's sake. It really was, do not try this at home. It absolutely felt very trailer park or, you know, something, if you were having Thanksgiving at the end of a dirt road, this is how you would cook the bird. And so there's some kind of classist thing going on where it's like, look how these Duck Dynasty type weirdos uh, are doing this. And the National Turkey Federation, for reasons that are not clear to me, well, first of all, I'm not clear why we need a National Turkey Federation. Listen, that's why you're not a member of the National Turkey Federation. (laughs) I mean, I'm glad they have a union, but like, they're all going to, they get, they all get killed every November. It's just like the Kentucky colonels. It's an honorary thing. Except for the one that the president pardons all these turkeys every year, the whole federation dies. Uh And so they, they mobilize against us. They put out a press release saying how this is the ultimate insult to wholesome food. Oh, my my guess is. It insults the bird. (laughs) Well, it insults the food. (laughs) Now that I think about it, I wonder if it really is like they're in the middle of some big Turkey as a health food branding. Ah, uh, sure. Because this is the, it's the other white meat. It's, yeah, it's the other other it's the white other, meat. Other, other white meat. <laughs> Americans are starting to get fat from their corn syrup or whatever, and I'm guessing Turkey is going all in on big Turkey is going all in on how how healthy it is to replace this. Put ground turkey in your meatloaf. So you know? it wasn't a thing where they were like, when you kill a turkey, you should smear the blood on your cheek and, <laughs> you know, and honor its sacrifice. <laughs> That's right. Eat every part of the bird. It was really more like this is going to have 75% more fat. But they also said, you know, also you're, you might undercook it because it, it cooks so suddenly. What if you don't get the middle of the, the breastbone up to up to temperature? Right, right, right. And you all get whatever. Trichinosis. <laughs> Turkinosis? <laughs> Did you say turkinosis? <laughs> you get... Wait, do I have a bell? <laughs> You get uh, trypsodichinosis. Trypsodichinocus? Nocus. <laughs> Trips. That's a kind of little potato uh, pasta. Trypsodichinocus. I have never had any kind of dick tripping related food poisoning, so I don't know. Um, but they would also warn that there were going to be injuries. There were going to be burns. Oh, right. And, and, How uh, do you drop a turkey into a vat of boiling lard without splattering? It turns out I have some firsthand experience and it is not easy, but here's the money quote from the, I'll get back to that, but here's the money quote from the National Turkey Federation. This is a loaded double barrel shotgun. Whoa. Metaphorical. Well, it's trying, they're trying to communicate to people at the end of a dirt road in their own (laughs) language. (laughs) Listen, y'all. Imagine if you will, a shotgun. So here's what they're, one barrel is a cardiologist nightmare. Oh. 
all the extra fat in your crispy turkey skin. Who, whoever's writing the press releases for the National Turkey Foundation feels like one of my kind of people. The other is a microbiologist's worst dream come Jeez. true. You're going to get salmonella and uh, have a quadruple bypass. Kapow, kapow. But the lure of this idea that you're deep frying a giant thing in a giant metal pot uh, catches it is alluring. newly um, indulgent America you know, catches our eye. Well, and it's the reverse snobbery of like, you can see like upper middle class people because this was also an era and I'm really stretching here, but an era where people, Americans were claiming rural roots as a form of authenticating themselves within upper middle class culture. It was no longer a thing where you necessarily had to try and connect your family to uh, the Mayflower you could now, I saw this a lot in the early 90s, people saying like, oh no, we just come from hard, hard scrabble background. We're just like self-made people. It was a new, a new sort of middle-class pride. So they're- I guess because maybe tied to the rich becoming even more um, obviously awful than they were before as income inequality grew and the stock market became kind of what drove- American life. Yeah. Do you remember George Herbert Walker Bush being roundly uh, ridiculed for not knowing the price of a gallon right. of milk? And for having two middle names. <laughs> <laughs> but he went into a supermarket and he was like, what is, you know, a gallon yeah. of milk? It's like, what is that? 30 bucks? Yeah. 30, $40. <laughs> Who knows? No, I've never bought one. <laughs> he has literally no idea. That's your George Bush voice. Uh, sure. Uh, literally, literally never. <laughs> I'm President Bush. I, uh, read my lips. I, uh, no, no, no new taxes. He didn't really talk like that. No he, did. no, he talked kind of like Dana Carvey doing Bush. Yeah, and uh, and to this day, I think you'll you'll see a lot of this in upscale food. It'll be comfort food, but turned right. fancy. Like right. I don't know how many places in Seattle when I moved here were, were doing, you know, m- meatloaf, but it was lobster meatloaf. Sure, or sausage corn dogs, gravy, but, but it would have caviar on the it. Sausage was not actually sausage. It was right. It was uh, what was it, it? It was truffles. Right, truffle sausage gravy for your truffle. Chicken fried steak. And a lot of that is just a recognition that poor people food is a lot better than rich people food. Really much better, except for your cardiologist and your (laughs) your microbiologist. Except for the double barrel shotgun. Those guys are like, no, no. Well, so it was later, right? It was later that the the magic of the turducken arrived in the the national consciousness. Do you remember the first time you heard of a turducken? I feel like it was John Madden's fault that I heard about turduckens. But Ahidu was not the originator. It was, it was Paul Prudhomme back in the... Oh, it was our hero, Paul Prudhomme. Back in Nolens, I think, um, much earlier than that, showing people this novelty he had seen. And explain what a turducken is, if people don't know. A turducken is a chicken inside of a duck inside of a turkey. So you debone these critters, you debone a chicken, which I would have assumed the duck went inside the chicken. But apparently you put the chicken inside it's the duck. It's a single chicken McNugget. You put the lime in the coconut. And then you put the combination of the chicken and the duck. And I guess what it, what it makes sense because a chicken is kind of a certain kind of meat. And then the duck is, a, is an oilier meat. And then it goes inside the turkey. And then when you slice it, it becomes this kind of marbled. Um, oh, do you eat slices of it? I've never actually had one. I think because you debone them in order to get them to fit them inside one another. So then you can eat it like a loaf. It's just a big meat. It's just a big loaf. I've never really. I love to eat poultry in loaf form. The turducken actually goes way, way. It's a thing that was, um, that goes back to the very early, 
I guess the late 18th century. It's just like the mega rich having, because you always read about how this stuffed into this, right. stuffed into a nightingale, stuffed into a... So there was a there was something called the roast without equal, which the largest bird was a bustard, which is a giant. I mean, it's not as big as a as an ostrich or an emu, but it's like a big... It's a big semi-flightless slim, semi, bird, right. right? A flightless bird with hairy feathers. I say bustard. I like that you say bustard, though. I'm going to say bustard. Do you remember when Madonna used to wear one of those bustards <laughs> on did. stage? She made it famous. Very sexy. So it was a bustard stuffed with a turkey, stuffed with a goose, stuffed with a pheasant, stuffed with a chicken. Then in this version of it, the duck goes inside the chicken. Bustard, turkey, goose, goose, pheasant, pheasant, chicken, then a duck inside a chicken, a guinea fowl inside the duck, a teal, a teal, a teal. Like all these things are roughly the same size. I'm I'm starting to become skeptical that you can actually put. Well, you have to take all you take every all the bones and everything out, and you just have the meat. So you're just, you're just squishing them, basically. You're just cramming them in there, and do, you have do they to have start. A beak? With, you have to start with a big bustard. No, I think you take the beak out. No beak. Uh, a teal, then a woodcock, a partridge, which seems like a bigger bird than a teal, but maybe I'm wrong, a plover, a lapwing, a quail, again, seems a quail seems bigger than a lapwing, a thrush, a lark, an Ortolian bunting, and in the very, very Wait, inside. The Ortolian bunting, that's the one where um, it was so greasy that you'd have to eat it with a napkin over your head, right? Have you heard about this? <laughs> A napkin over your head. Yeah, I think people would everybody put a napkin over the head because the, 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 gre grease the grease would, would just fly when they bit into their Ortolian well, bunting. Apparently, if you put an Ortolian bunting inside of a lark. Sure, that catches it, all the it grease. It catches the grease. That's why you do it. And then at the very center, a garden warbler. <laughs> so really, there's no single word. You, I mean, it's hard to turducken this. You, yeah, what would it, it would be? It would be a buster, goofa, chick, da, ginty, woo, pa, plo, lap, quay, thra, lark, or blur. Mm-hmm. Delicious. I feel like that's a, we, that may be the futureling, actually. Maybe what they call themselves. I can't wait to put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> Everyone's going to love that. The, uh, I'm, so I've never had a turducken, but I have had fried turkey on Thanksgiving. Because it became, it became mass culture. Martha Stewart did it in the 90s, and then you could go to Walmart or Target, and they would be, they would be selling rigs. You'd have, you wouldn't have to lower it in on a rope anymore because there would be one of these um, call colander-like things you would lower into the fat. Like, you know, America was ready to give you a processed way to do this. I'm ready. And it's not. And the National Turkey Federation was not wrong about the danger, by the way. Um, not just from splatter, but from, from disease and heart attack? Disease and heart attack, a little harder to trace back to one turkey. Um, but you can definitely, you know, we do know that deep fryers are dangerous, yeah. right? In general, in America, every year, five people are killed by deep fryers, 60 are injured, and 900 homes are burned down. What? This is not by turkeys, but every year, 900 homes in America are lost to people deep frying poorly. To people deep frying? <laughs> <laughs> to people. What happens? And Thanksgiving is the biggest day. Like insurance companies know that Thanksgiving is the biggest Fire, cooking fire claim day of the year. And a third of these claims are now in garages and patios. And that means people saw Martha or Justin Wilson or whoever deep frying, mm -hmm. and they're going to give this a go, even though they are not remotely, because it's all these confident dads, overconfident dads. Basically. Right. Oh my God. <laughs> Worse a than crawdads. A plague upon the land. <laughs> I can do it. And so insurance companies know uh, every year they get 38 claims uh, in Texas for a Thanksgiving cooking fire every year, 20, 27 from Illinois. 23 from Pennsylvania and Ohio, 22 from New York, 16 from 
South Carolina and Georgia because not a single one from Washington. I'm guessing Washington and Oregon are busy doing something other than this. We did not call in our claim the year. My, so my brother-in-law fries a turkey every year, and one year we had them over, and uh, Mindy was going to bake a roast a turkey, but they were like, "Oh, and we'll fry one outside." Oh my god! And the thing about Seattle on Thanksgiving is it's always raining, right? Which means you're trying to. Deep fry a turkey. Deep fry hot oil while water is splashing in. In a neighborhood where everyone else is listening to NPR and drinking kombucha <laughs> for Thanksgiving. Your brother-in-law is out there shooting fireworks and trying Wee! to- <laughs> He's doing that kind of hillbilly dance where your legs are kind of wide apart. Deep and frying a turkey in a 50-gallon drum. We grabbed the umbrella from our um, patio furniture and tried to put it over the- Oh. over the thing to keep it dry, but it just it, kept blowing over. We it, it broke our patio umbrella in many different places because the wind kept catching it. I thought you were going to say it caught on fire and then blew away, So starting a fire throughout the neighborhood. I mean, that's the kind of thing that totally could happen. It, sure, uh, Mr. O'Leary's cow in the form of <laughs> Ken's O'Leary's, brother-in-law. <laughs> Mr. Butterball's cow. My um, Mindy's dad, my wife's dad, has a story about a coworker who was very excited to fry his first turkey, but he... Um, you know, it's very hard to find a pot that big. And so right. his turkey was too, a little too big and his pot was a little too small. And he really had to kind of shove it down Boy, in there. You're just, you're talking about my college years now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to know what metaphor has occurred to you. Um, but as the oil heated up, I guess, it put the oil under the turkey under quite a bit of pressure. <laughs> and this guy just shot a turkey <laughs> over his house. Because his pot was a little too small. Killing his entire family. <laughs> Killing whoever was on the other end of the... Can you imagine it just flying through the air on well, fire? Well, yeah, you're sitting, you're sitting at your Thanksgiving dinner, and then over the top of your house comes the arcing this comet. The Turkey Federation gave up. They know when they're licked. If you go to their website now, there are six recipes for fried turkeys. Um, but injuries, deep fryer injuries have severely declined in the last dec decade, and I assume it's because of the novelty of frying a turkey has kind of worn off. People have maybe realized it's really not that much of a game changer. It really was kind of driven by this new media need to have a new way of making. Can you imagine being a food writer and every year you have to write a damn story about turkey, uh, this food that is fine, but maybe nobody's that into, and there's not a lot of novelty you can bring to the table? Like something like this is a blessing in disguise. You know, this idea that there was actually a, a, a new way to do it was catnip to these people. Well, unfortunately, in order to fit another name drop into this episode. Oh, here we go. Uh, I'm, a, I'm good friends with Adam Sachs, who was the editor of Savour magazine. Uh, just recently stopped being editor of Savour. Uh, is Savour not Savour anymore? I feel Savour like. is maybe still Savour, but he, Adam no longer edits it. But he and I, when I'm in New York, he's someone who eats like this, right? Every meal is some kind of exotic fricassee of quails stuffed into oysters, stuffed into, you know, warblers. And uh, I've had several meals with him and realize he eats like this every, I mean, he can't not have a meal like this. He, I mean, I, even if he's having a cheeseburger, he has to do it in some, he has to put an oyster in it. Because he feels like he's wasted the meal. Yeah. I, it's I, just, I, I have friends like it's this. It's this kind of crazy sport, uh, art, art eating. And I've been in restaurants with him where Everybody knows him because he's a, he's in the New York food culture. And so the chefs make special things and bring him out. But then the restaurants that he would take me to are also full of other food writers and personalities. So they all come and they're buying expensive bottles of champagne and every meal is an event. 
And it really makes me feel like as I sit at home on the couch in my underwear eating like pesto that I made straight out of the pot that I am living a very meager life by comparison to some people. It's a, it's a symbol of your own a symbol inadequacies. It is. I, some, and the thing is I go to New York and I have a few of these experiences and I'm like, ah, I see. I could be preloading for a massive heart attack in a great way instead of the, the like meager way that I'm doing it. Cause I'm going to have the same heart attack as that guy. It's a double barrel shotgun. And that concludes Deep Fried Turkeys, entry 325.JN0432, certificate number 30269 in the omnibus. Futurelings, future turduckens, future... Buster Goose Fetchigdak Ginty Woodpar Plolap Quay Thrush Lark Orblers? In the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at Omnibus Project. All of John's lunch photos of his sad sauce manifesto. You can see a lot of photos on my Instagram account where I am doing fascinating, fascinating things. And if you're not watching my Instagram, you're not feeling that vague sense of... of uh, like inadequacy, inadequacy that comes with seeing John and Jason Isbell. That's right. So just laying on my couch eating pesto <laughs> in our in our Nude. Kentucky string ties and nothing else. Um, so definitely, I mean, every once in a while, a bunch of people will follow me on Instagram, and I'm like, why are people? Why? What happened? Where did these 15 people come from? And then I realize we we hype it every time, and maybe there are people that are like, oh, okay, finally I'll do it. And you browbeat them into it. They're universally disappointed. I think when they <laughs> see that most of my Photos are just like dimly lit pictures taken in my living room at midnight. Like close-up selfies of your face doing kind of a, a exhausted expression or an yeah. eye roll. And I'd, then the caption says something like, this something is an wry. exhausted expression or an eye roll. Yeah. I often do like, is this a pimple? Does this look like a pimple to you? <laughs> uh, you can check out Ken's hilarious and controversial tweets at Ken Jennings and uh, my Twitter account, which feels every time I log into Twitter now, I feel like I'm going into a cave that is full of tigers. So I'm very cautious now. I used to have so much fun there, and now, now I'm it's terrified. All, it's all Russian tigers. I'm just terrified to go in there. Um, you can also email us, and please do, at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Ken will reply. I sometimes remember that we have it and go in and reply to the ones that, that mention me specifically. Most people are like... Can I love Jeopardy? That is not true. When I look at it, it's like, in Roderick on the Line episode 807, uh, you claim, I'm like, skip, delete. Uh, and please go to our Facebook page, Omnibus Futurelings on Facebook, where people, it is actually now a dating site, but also it we is- We finally got the dating site of our dreams. Also, it is a great opportunity to meet like-minded people who want to still talk about postal trucks even though that episode aired two months ago. So 2,000 of them now, I think. I think uh, by the time this uh, entry gets added to the time capsule. Oh, nice. I think we will have cleared our 2,000th future link. Uh, and you can send us real mail. The U.S. Postal Service has not been privatized yet. Send us recipes. At P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. 
Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization will survive. We hope and pray that our Thanksgiving feasts may continue for many a season yet, but the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>